on RTE Radio 1 now. It's time to join Owen McDevitt, Ken Early, Kieran Murphy and Barack Obama's speechwriter Cody Keenan on Second Captain Sunday. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning, welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Owen, Murph and Ken all here. Hi there, fellas. Hey there, Owen. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good. Thanks. A little peek behind the scenes here. When we're asking a guest to come on the show, we always need to just make sure they're totally clear on the main requirement. And that is that they need to be able to dredge up a sporting highlight from the mists of their own sporting careers and serve it up to be admired or usually to be ridiculed. Last week, we were in contact with this morning's guest, explaining how it all works. It's called the Second Captain's Greatest Non-Sports Person Sports Person Competition. Mm-hmm. Previous contestants have finished seventh in the North Leinster Cross-Country Championships, banged in a headed goal while wearing glasses as a kid. That kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Now, we were our, shooting for the stereo still. Yeah, so we were explaining all this. Our guest was very pleasant in response, saying, yeah, got it, no problem at all. Yeah. He was far too polite to email us back and say, guys... Just pipe down there, will you? I'm actually in the middle of writing the speech that will launch Barack Obama roaring back into the middle of the political fray, tearing into Trump and the Republican Party and calling for a restoration of honesty and decency and lawfulness in the US government. He did not email us that because Cody Keenan is a nice guy. And that's who we're talking to. <laughs> on today's show. I know what I would have said if I had a bunch of people in Ireland email me with this nonsense. But Sorry, no. It, just, I hate to push you on this, Cody, but we will need that all-time sporting highlight from your own career. I, I got a picture Obama on one shoulder looking for some yeah, fine-tuning yeah. and us just firing these emails at him to get the highlights sorted. That is unfortunate. Cody is Obama's personal speechwriter, having been his chief speechwriter during his time in office. That was all after working his way up from his internship during Obama's campaign in 2007. Quite a meteoric rise. Here's a little snippet of the speech Obama made last week, the one I referenced there, at the University of Illinois. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. He's just capitalizing on resentments that politicians have been fanning for years. We're supposed to stand up to discrimination. And we're sure as heck supposed to stand up clearly and unequivocally to Nazi sympathizers. How hard can that be, saying that Nazis are bad? Hmm, that's that's a fair enough point. And I don't think we're going to argue that one with Cody Keenan today. Although we weren't blown away by all aspects of the speech, there is plenty to get into with Cody this morning. The main motivation for speaking in the way Obama did seems to be that he wants people, especially young people, to get out and vote in the upcoming midterm elections. One of the more intriguing subplots of these midterms is the race for a Senate seat in Texas. It's a surprisingly close one between a progressive firebrand Democrat called Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, one of Donald Trump's old adversaries. This race is so close that Trump has announced he's going to fly to Texas and offer his support to the man he used to refer to as Lion Ted during the Republican primary. Quick refresher on this, Ken. Mm-hmm. During that campaign, Trump suggested Ted Cruz's dad may have been involved in the assassination of JFK. That's, yes. During that campaign, Cruz called Trump a pathological liar, a serial philanderer, and <laughs> utterly amoral. And also during that campaign... Cruz got especially incensed after Trump retweeted an unflattering photo of Cruz's wife, Heidi, next to Trump's wife, Melania. I don't get angry often, but you mess with my wife, you mess with my kids, that'll do it every time. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. So will you support him as the nominee? I'm going to beat him for the nomination. He is not, I am answering the question, Donald Trump will not be the nominee. What, he got that one wrong? All is well that ends well. The two men are now firm political allies. Which is great, isn't it? It's good that Ted Cruz has been able to be the bigger man here <laughs> and forgive, <laughs> forgive what was said about I mean, I, who here hasn't had their father implicated in the JFK <laughs> at some point in your life? Uh, you know? yeah, so We've of, all been in, the, in Ted's shoes at one stage or another. <laughs> that is true. There's plenty of big-time politics to get into with Cody. But don't worry, he's heard us loud and clear. He has been thinking deeply about his sporting highlight that he hopes will get him to the top of the 2018 second captain's non-sportsperson sportsperson charts. How are those charts looking, Murph? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> 
Okay, we've fallen into a little bit of a rut here. Oh, Ashling B has been leading since week two. Paul Howard has been bottom <laughs> since week three. Can anything change this morning? That's the big question. Every score so far has been in the 70s. Ashling B is on top with 78, so Cody will need to go some to get into the shake-up here. However, I hear he has some game, some real right. high school game. So the next hour will tell a tale. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter at Second Captains. We are going to get things moving with the first song of the morning. And after that, it's Cody Keenan on Second Captain Saturday. played them before now on the show that's Tin Lizzy with Dancing in the Moonlight alright it is time to bring an international dimension to our race to become the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person today's guest rose through the ranks to become director of speech writing during Barack Obama's presidency when the time came to leave the White House he answered Obama's call to stick with them as his personal speech writer and just last weekend the world saw the fruits of their labour together Cody Keenan you're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday Thank you for having me. How are you guys? We're very good, thanks. How are you? I mean, you've just written a speech that dominated news headlines around the world. I presume the ranking of your sports career makes you more nervous, though. Yes, terrified. (laughs) (laughs) You should be, Cody, you should be. We'll get to that, but it was a hell of a speech. I I presume you would have known this was a big one. Did you you feel extra pressure? No, you know, I've been writing with him now for 11 years. Uh, And and I say with, because he really always has been our chief speechwriter. I mean, none of this is just something we hand to him and he goes up and gives it. I mean, he, you know, I think we went through maybe six or seven drafts together last week and it all, it all begins with him telling me exactly what he wants to say. Okay, so you said, that's an interesting one, how it actually works. It's not just a general theme. He, he comes with a lot of specifics, does he? And then it, it starts from there? We, he'll usually start with a general theme and some points he wants to hit. I'll go write up a draft and give it to him and he'll work with that as kind of initial, uh, uh, as kind of a starting point. Um, and, you know, he'll give me more feedback on that verbally before before he starts diving into it and I'll go back and work on it and 
you know, for a big speech like that, where uh, that's what we scientifically call them, big speeches, where we know people will be paying attention, you know, we'll go through maybe five to seven drafts together, uh, you know, and he'll be making, you know, small edits uh, up until the flight out that day. I've got um, scenes of the West Wings swimming around my head here, Cody. Uh, you know, a team of writers, a lot of tension between everybody. Is that how it is, or is it one-on-one, really, at this age, you and, and Barack Obama? It's one-on-one, really. Um, <clears throat> it always has been. I mean, we had, we had an incredible team of eight writers in the White House, but you know, we never really sat around computers together and banged out a speech. We always found that took a lot longer. But we would typically bounce ideas off each other, share our drafts with each other, you know, get them into a good place for giving it to him. Uh, unfortunately, now I'm the only speechwriter left. I'm the only one too stubborn to leave. So it's pretty <laughs> much just me and him now. You've you've done your bit. He gets to the lectern. He, he clears his throat. He's ready to go. How are you feeling at that stage? As you say, you've been through it many times before. How were you feeling last weekend when he was when he gave that speech in, in the University of Illinois? Honestly, usually tired. <laughs> uh, but, but in this case, I was fired up because there were a lot of people uh, waiting to hear from him. And uh, I, I think we delivered. Presumably, it was a lot of fun to write this one. This is this is the speech in which Obama finally gets to go after Trump a little bit. Was was it fun? It was fun. We we didn't actually look at it that way. You know, I, he he spent a long time in the speech before he got to Donald Trump, and and he specifically said, you know, Donald Trump is the symptom of what ails our democracy right now, not the cause. You know, he's kind of smaller than when the, what's at stake here. He's He's very destructive. His policies are destructive. He tears at the fabric of our democracy and democratic institutions every chance he gets. But it's not like he was just thrust upon us uh, within the past couple of years. There's there are a lot of things that have gone into kind of this moment we're in the United States. And what the president really wanted to talk about was, you know, chief among them is our own apathy and indifference. I mean, the real threat to our democracy is not Donald Trump. It's it's ourselves when we don't show up, when we don't vote, you know, in the last midterm non-presidential elections in 2014, only 19% of young people went out and voted. And if you just get that number to 40 or 50%, I mean, you know, voters now in millennials and Gen Xers outnumber boomers in the silent generation. And if you just show up and vote, it changes our priorities on everything. You know, you get members of Congress who care about the climate and who care about gun violence and care about rethinking the economy for a growing young population. And, you know, a lot of people turn away from politics when it looks like politicians aren't serving their interests. But the only way to get politicians to serve your interests is to put the right ones in there in the first place. There, there is a long tradition, which Obama referred to, um, of former presidents kind of, uh, you know, not, not commenting on current politics. I mean, you yourself were guests on the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast uh, recently. Uh, and you said at a time when every political norm and tradition is breaking down, this is one that he has the power to uphold by himself. It's the, the norm, obviously, of not sort of criticizing your successor. So what changed? I don't think any one thing in particular changed. I mean, you know, if everything had gone right, we'd have a different president right now. In the White House, he wouldn't have to go out and warn about, you know, our democracy. Um, but he did feel a need to step up at this moment. And, you know, we didn't view it as an anti-Trump speech. We voted. We viewed it as a pro-citizenship, pro-active democracy speech. And it's very in line with the ones he gave over the last year of his presidency, you know, beginning with the State of the Union address, which was well before Donald Trump was the nominee. He addressed a lot of the kind of flaws and fragility involved in our democracy when people don't show up and vote or pay attention. You know, he had a, he, he added a great line to the farewell address on his own about, you know, how we can spend all day complaining about our leaders, but we really need to examine uh, our own culpability in electing them in the first place or not. It did sound to me, though, like he, he was concentrating a lot on the problems of the Republican Party. I mean, you know, the the racism and the conspiracy theories and the radical anti-government uh, agenda, you know, redistribution of wealth to the... to You know, he, familiar, familiar flaws to everybody who's familiar with the Republican Party. But he was, he was kind of focused on them, which reminded me a little bit of the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, when talking about how bad Donald Trump and the Republican Party where appeared to be the main tactic, and as everybody knows, didn't work. Well, <clears throat> I, I, apples and oranges, sort of. You know, w- what he wanted to focus on there is what has happened to the Republican Party over 20 years to prove that this is not just something that Donald Trump has created in the last two years. And that's a really important point. I mean, letting, you know, this kind of division and conspiracy theory and, you know, rejection of fact and science and, 
you know, unwinding campaign finance laws and changing tax laws so they benefit the rich and powerful. This is all kind of a long 20-year thing that's been happening in our politics. And people have to know and recognize that. And there was a direct appeal in the speech to, you know, Republicans and conservatives who look at our politics right now and go, okay, you know, I disagree with Democrats on policy, right? I think maybe some of their social issues are off, but there's nothing conservative about separating children from their mother at the border. You know, I'm a Republican who believes in small, limited government that should only do a couple things, but one of those things is making sure 3,000 Puerto Ricans don't die after a hurricane. And there has to be some sort of house clearing in the Republican Party. And there do need to be good Republicans and independents who cross over and, you know, tell the party, this is not the right direction. Like, our democracy cannot withstand this for another four, eight, 12 years. So it's not so much trying to convince people to vote against Republicans. It's trying to convince people to vote for something else, for something better. And... You know, one of the and he spent some time in the speech too, saying that you know one of the remarkable things in our politics right now, and I'm you know I'm sure if Donald Trump loses in the midterms, he'll take credit for this, is that there is kind of this extraordinary outpouring of citizenship and active engagement and involvement, and it's not just people marching; it's people running for office. You know, I've got a friend right now in Maryland who's never thought he'd get into politics, and now he's running for office for the first time, and he did four tours in Afghanistan, and he's just like, I can't sit around and let this happen anymore. Um, you've got all these extraordinary young candidates, you know, a record number of women candidates. I think half of all House candidates, non-incumbent House candidates, are women. And, you know, that's one pretty great silver lining about our politics right now. I, I don't know. I didn't really get that sense, though, uh, Cody, that he that, that, that there was sort of enough there about an exciting, you know, sketching out an exciting vision for the Democratic Party or, or maybe reflection on, on what the Democratic Party has done wrong to allow this to happen because I mean he did he did uh, at one point say yeah you know our party it's not like our party has a monopoly on wisdom and referred to um, you know the, the Democratic Party's support of slavery in in the eighteen you know up to the eighteen sixties and on, I guess beyond but we're going back a long way uh, it, there doesn't seem to have been much of a reckoning with why it was that uh, you know the little guy so to speak that Donald Trump appealed to didn't seem to think the Democrats were on his side anymore there was a little of it i mean we weren't going to go on and on being self-flagellating but there was there's he's he's been plenty forthcoming over the past year or two on the flaws inside the democratic party and the mistakes that we made but at the same time he's not apologetic for our policies you know he thinks they're the right ones he went out and, and talked about some of the policies that some of the more liberal and interesting policies the democrats are running on right now but the bigger thrust of the speech is you know knowing what the flaws are in our democracy in order to go out and fix them yeah. I mean, there's a famous old line by Gore Vidal uh, about, I mean, I think he said this maybe the end of the 70s, sort of start of the 80s, but his line was, uh, in America, we have one party, the property party, and it has two right wings, Republican and Democrat. I wonder if you still think that applies. I mean, the, the idea was that essentially, you know, the parties might disagree on things like, you know, maybe one party slightly less racist, maybe one party wants slightly lower taxes, but they kind of agree on all the important stuff. That no longer seems to be the case in America. Yeah, I've never subscribed to that, uh, and certainly not now. I mean, the last two years should, I know there are still plenty of cynics who are like, the parties are the same. I, the last two years should disabuse anybody of that notion. I mean, whether it's tax policy, the fact that the Republicans are the only major political party on the planet that don't believe in the existence of climate change. Um, I mean, th there are plenty of, there are plenty of logical and rational complaints about the Democratic Party and about our policies, but you can't say that we're not a contrast to the Republicans. Is it enough for contrast, though? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that the when you look at the approval ratings for major politicians in America, consistently the most popular politician in America is, is Bernie Sanders, uh, who isn't a Republican or a Democrat, uh, but he does, people have a clear idea of what it is that he stands for. He keeps repeating it. He's saying free health care, you know, free education, uh, let's give people parental leave, and let's redistribute wealth. And this is a really popular message. You know, I can't understand why the Democrats, seeing the popularity of it, and seeing the popularity of it, when Donald Trump used it, I mean, Donald, Donald Trump was, was always talking about, you know, the forgotten men and women of America and how he's going to stand up for them. Now, he, he wasn't telling the truth, but I mean, he said it, and people thought, well, at least this guy's saying it, it seems to me as though there's a kind of an unwillingness on the part of the Democratic Party to sort of push the boat out on that. 
No, I don't agree with that. I think if you look at most of the races right now, Democrats are running on those policies. And I'll give Bernie a lot of credit for bringing them to the forefront. Um, But I I reject the idea that he was doing anything profoundly different than what we were doing. I mean, you can there's there's a lot of argument right now in the Democratic Party, right? You've got, you know, it's kind of the incrementalists versus the absolutists, you know. Barack Obama was a coward for not going all single payer. Okay, fine. But he admitted this when he first went into health reform. He said, I mean, this is eight years ago now. If if I had, you know, my preferred outcome would be if we were starting from scratch to go with a single payer type system. But that's not the reality we live in, you know, and it's not giving up to admit that. I mean, unless you have 60 votes in the United States Senate for something like that, you're not going to get it. And in the meantime, we covered 20 million people with health insurance. That's more than anybody since LBJ. So what you do is secure that, you know, protect it, build on it, have the next president go a little bit further. I see no shame. I, I don't feel defensive about that at all. But to just say, you know, well, the Democrats are corporate sellouts because they didn't cover literally everybody in eight years. You're going to be unhappy with politics forever if that's your point of view. Yeah. No, I don't mean to, to say that, you know, half a loaf is the same as no bread or whatever. I mean, clearly some improvements are better than, the, you know, I think Obama said in the speech, better is always worth fighting for. But I wonder if you're fighting an election, if it's the sort of thing that, that works. I mean, I think Trump's campaign, and there was a lot of brilliant aspects of this campaign. I mean, the simple slogans that everybody can remember, make America great again, yeah, drain the swamp, uh, lock her up, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was like three, four letter stuff. Have the Democrats thought about how, how they're going to actually compete with this sort of style? Do they need to actually take a more, uh, you know, put across a more vivid vision of what it is that they're looking for rather than an incrementalist vision? I mean, here's an example of the difference in style. And this is a line maybe you might have written or had a hand in writing. There was a speech Obama gave five years ago. Uh, about the American economy, he actually sounded a bit like Trump in it, or said some of the sort of things that Trump said. You know, the the system is rigged. People feel it's rigged against them. We, we've you know we've got to stop this. But he said the rungs on the ladder of opportunity are getting further and further apart. This was this was how Obama sort of talked about it. Trump's version of that was the American dream is dead. You know, it's the same. It's the same idea. It's it's essentially the same concept. But I wonder, did, are, are the Democrats yet, after you know, coming up on two years of, of Trump being the president, have they sort of managed to develop any equally vivid ideas that they could put across to say, look, we are different and we are worth getting out and voting for? <clears throat> I mean, the only one I could speak for is Barack Obama. But, you know, I, you just quoted some of our lines, which we believe in. The difference is we weren't demagoguing things. We were trying to explain how people felt rather than tell them how they feel. You know, and we did a lot of this through qualitative and quantitative research. I mean, we I usually channeled people's letters to the president into speeches. So when he would say back, you know, people feel like the ladders of the rungs on the ladder getting farther apart. You know, that comes directly from just some random person in Minnesota or Ohio who writes to the president. So but but to get to your question, I you know, we've never been big fans of sound bites or bumper stickers. And, you know, people can kind of gnash their teeth over that say well why not you know but it's just we're not demagogues you know it it, where where does that bring us you can say that donald trump is really successful by saying make america great again or whatnot but where has that actually gotten us you know the swamp swampier than ever so there's a there's a difference between you know campaigning and actively lying one democrat who is firing people up is beto o'rourke cody he's locked in a battle with ted cruz for the senate seat in texas can you tell us a little bit about this guy who exactly is beto o'rourke I don't know what's on about Beto. I mean, I'd never heard of him before this year. But, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that, and, and this kind of gets to the last couple of questions, one of the things that separates him that people, you know, people are calling him the next Barack Obama, the next Bobby Kennedy, he just, he's honest. He tells the truth. And by that, I mean, I don't mean he doesn't lie. I mean, he actually is unafraid to say what he believes in. You know, he's unafraid to give an answer. He's unafraid to you know, poll test everything first. You look at you look at his answer that went viral to a question about the NFL players kneeling. What really resonated with that wasn't that he was super eloquent. It was that he wasn't terrified to say exactly what he thought about the subject. He didn't have to get all marble mouth and, you know, do a long explanation. He just came right out and said, I can't think of anything more patriotic than protest. I understand that this particular protest might offend some people, but there's nothing more American than somebody you know, protesting and asking us to be better 
and challenging the status quo. It's the only way America's gotten as far as it has. Yeah, and just to give people background on that, the whole Colin Kaepernick protest came about a couple of years ago. He's the He was the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers in 2016, began getting down on one knee during the national anthem to protest racial injustice and police brutality against black people. Now, other people, including Trump, chose to interpret it as an attack on the anthem, on the military and on America itself. And Kaepernick has essentially been frozen out of his own sport. O'Rourke, I think you, you've described there pretty much what he said. He can think of nothing more American actually than what this guy than what Kaepernick is doing peacefully standing up for his rights anywhere anytime any place it's interesting you said you didn't think it was necessarily the most eloquent speech of all time but it, it was just common sense really is that what you're saying yeah well <clears throat> not even so much common sense is just like he was unafraid to say exactly what he believed you know he didn't kind of beat around the bush he didn't try to give an answer that would please everybody he came right out and gave his answer you know and you can disagree with it but at least you're not going to walk away from it and say I couldn't tell what he was saying or he was just trying to please everybody. And there's, you know, it kind of gets to that core notion of authenticity. I mean, you know, people have very sophisticated bullshit detectors these days. And, you know, it'd be hard to see Hillary Clinton giving an answer like that. Uh, that that's the kind of answer that Barack Obama would give. And that's why a lot of people kind of flocked to him. Uh, and then meanwhile, you have, you know, Ted Cruz, his opponent in the Texas Senate race, just cut an ad trying to claim that it, he was actually saying he's pro-flag burning when there's nothing about flag burning anywhere. It's just the most cynical, sad kind of politics there is. Well, sorry, Cody, how, how did he go about trying to make it look as though Beto O'Rourke had said something that he, that he didn't say? The ad basically begins by saying uh, Beto O'Rourke supports flag burning, see what he had to say. And then they just cut a line out of it saying that he couldn't think of anything more patriotic and just ignoring the rest. So, you know, what the Cruz campaign is betting on, first of all, you can tell they're terrified of Beto O'Rourke if they have to put out this kind of ad. But they're also betting on, you know, the, the fact that people are busy and don't always have time to pay attention. And maybe people didn't see what he actually said. And they're going to see this and go, oh, my God, you know, that candidate supports flag burning. Uh, but it's just it's pathetic. You know, it's the kind of thing that people hate about politics when we actually have a chance to elect more people who you know, are unafraid to say what they say, or are not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. You know, it's, it's how politics kind of gets dragged down into the muck. A progressive Democrat surely isn't going to beat such a well-known Republican in the state of Texas, though, is he? It's, it's a one-point race, right. which, which no one ever believed in. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of moral victories. Uh, a lot of people are trying to argue that the Chicago Bears, my favorite team, only losing by one to the Packers the other night is moral victory. <laughs> no way, dude. I want a victory. Um but what he's been able to do in Texas is pretty extraordinary. I think the last, you know, the last Democrat to run statewide in the gubernatorial race lost by 20 points. So <clears throat> Beto's closing the gap. And, and you can tell the difference between a confident candidate and a scared candidate by what they focus on. And Beto's, you know, been to every county in Texas. He's focusing relentlessly on policies that make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, Ted Cruz is tweeting about what some Hollywood celebrity said and making up stuff about flag burning. I mean, you can see who's confident, who's scared there. Trump is also going to be flying in to support his old friend Ted Cruz, which was maybe indicative of the fact that the Republicans are taking this one seriously. Yeah, I mean, he shouldn't have to do that if, if they were in good shape. I mean, what he'll probably do is, you know, scare out a lot of Republican voters. But what Beto's been trying to do is not just convince Democrats to vote, but he's trying to do what we did in 2008, which is expand the electorate and get people to vote who maybe have never voted before. Um, you know, you look at the demographics in Texas, they're already favorable to Democrats. It's just that a lot of people don't turn out and vote, especially when a president's not on the ballot. Um, and I think it's, you know, you're going to see a lot of nastiness down there before Election Day. The, the whole Republicans will run on, you know, Latino street gangs and illegal immigrants and terrorism and flag burning and whatever. Um, but Beto has been a remarkably disciplined candidate and a lot of fun to watch. You said people see a bit of Obama in him. You know Obama better than anybody. Do you see any of Obama in, in this man? Yeah, I do. There, there's kind of a fundamental optimism um, that even comes forward when people are trying to take him down, you know, and no fear to, to, to try to shake up, you know, the, the way you talk about issues. I mean, if you one thing about politics and one thing that we've always done in speech writing is just, you know, don't ever think you're smarter than the voter. You know, talk to them where they are. Don't try to hide things. Don't try to put too slick a package on things. Just talk to people, you know, and, and if, if you say the, the, the best way to be authentic is just to tell people something they already know and believe in, but that nobody ever says to them, you know, 
I, I think one one great way Obama did that in the 2008 campaign that I'll always remember was his uh, quote unquote race speech. That was our shorthand for the speech he gave in Philadelphia after his pastor came out and said a bunch of incendiary things. You know, Obama. I think a lot of politicians would just sweep that under the rug, hope it goes away, or even just you know condemn him and hope to move on. And Obama said, you know what? I want to give a thoughtful speech about race in America. And most people on the campaign were like, say what? That's just not something politicians do. But he decided, you know, I don't think I deserve to be president if I'm afraid to say what I actually believe. And, you know, people may or may not have agreed with the things I heard in that speech, but it was he was forthright and forthcoming about race in a way that, you know, no one running for president had ever been before. The first time and people remember that. Yeah. Absolutely. The first time Beto O'Rourke really came on my radar was when he made those comments uh, about the Kaepernick protest. And that might be the same for quite a few people, certainly people who, who follow a lot of sport like I do. It's only two years later, these protests are still going on. The opening round of the NFL was at the weekend. A couple of Miami Dolphins players took a knee. Some other players to raise their fists. Others stayed in the tunnel in, in, in other games around the league. Nothing, nothing massive league-wide, but certainly uh, still a smattering of protests there. Why do you think it is that two years on from Kaepernick's initial actions, this is still this is still happening. Because not enough has changed. You know, you look at what they're actually protesting, which is police violence that's more often than not aimed at African Americans. I mean, in a, in a disproportionate way, and not enough has changed there. So, you know, people keep protesting until it does. Um, and I don't know what that will eventually look like. You know, I don't know what the end game will eventually be, but it is something they've raised awareness about it. People are talking about it. I mean, there, there's a very cynical way of dismissing what they're doing by just saying, oh, yeah, they're they're protesting the troops, which is nonsense. You know, and I think any thinking person knows it's nonsense. Trump will keep banging that drum because he just he loves attention uh, and he loves to be divisive and he loves when people are talking about him. You know, I think the NFL probably just wants to go away, but I'm all for the players doing it until something changes. I mean, the this, this story of America one story, I think the truer story, is a story of protest and change. When, you know, we, we basically started as this country of rich white aristocrats who said all men were created equal, but that was really limited to white landowners. And over time, we've gradually made those words apply to everybody. Uh, and it's often, you know, downtrodden people without much power who do this at great physical harm to themselves. I mean, Selma, you look at Selma, the, this were African-Americans with no political power or wealth whatsoever marching for their right to vote. And, you know, they were beaten to within an inch of their lives before they even made it a mile. And that kind of woke the conscience of, of the country. Those images went around the world and they helped press President Johnson to push Democrats and Republicans to do a Voting Rights Act and a Civil Rights Act. Uh, and they changed the world. And NFL players have an even bigger stage and an even bigger megaphone. And so for them to be able to raise awareness for this type of thing, I think is really important. Before we leave the political sphere, Cody, we were going to get to see Trump up close over here. He was due to to come over, but the Irish trip has been cancelled this week. What's your reaction? You guys must be crushed. <laughs> uh, but look, Trump cancelled his first visit to the UK over protests there, thus becoming the first commander-in-chief to surrender to the British. So who knows what he's going to end up doing with Ireland. All right, Cody, well, that is the end of the politics chat for now. Up next, things are getting really serious. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday. After the break, we're taking a long, hard look at the sporting life of Barack Obama's speechwriter, Cody Keenan. RTE Radio 1. Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. Our guest this morning on Second Captain Saturday is Barack Obama's personal speechwriter, Cody Keenan. He took the decision, Cody, to stay with Obama after his time in the White House ended on one condition, from what I've heard, that if you wanted to attend a Chicago Cubs baseball game on any given weekend, you must be allowed to go. And this demand might stem from an occasion that you attended a game when really you should have been somewhere else. Well, I should have been at work. Uh, but, you know, Chicago's a two-hour flight. Uh, and I try to get out there as often as I can whenever the Cubs are in the playoffs. And this was two years ago, I think. Um, and I flew out for an early divisional round game on a, I want to say it was a Sunday night. It might have been the middle of the week. But he was giving a speech the next day. But, you know, we had a good enough rhythm at that point that I knew when I would hear from him. And if I took the 6.59 flight out of Chicago, I'd be back in D.C. and back in the office by 10. Uh but I get a phone call right in the middle of the game from the White House operator, and I answered it. And she said, please hold for the president. <laughs> I said, can you just 
can you just give me 30 seconds? And she was like, why? And I said, because I, I got to get somewhere quiet. So I kind of raced down into the concourse and found, you know, the most quiet corner I could in a stadium full of 40,000 crazed playoff baseball fans. And, you know, he, he, he said, you know, he always answers and goes, hey, brother. And he wanted to talk about the speech for the next day. And then somebody got a hit and the stadium went nuts and they have an old fashioned they have an old fashioned organ at Wrigley Field that they'll play. So the organ starts playing and he goes, he goes, Are you at Wrigley Field right now? And I was like, I, yes, I'm sorry. But I'm taking the first flight back tomorrow. And he was like, Whatever. You know, just make sure just make sure you make these changes to the speech. It's a bit of Ferris Buter's day off about that first. Quite a bit. I, I believe yeah, they were yeah. caught. Yeah, they were actually caught on TV, though, if I remember right, Cody. <laughs> Under almost any other circumstance, I would have gotten away with that. <laughs> you grew up near the stadium, the, near uh, Wrigley Field. Yeah, I was born seven blocks away and grew up about a twenty-minute walk away. It's a wonderful. It's it's the Sistine Chapel of baseball. It's a wonderful place to watch a game. So, is this a classic father-son bonding experience? You'd be taken to the ball game. Always. I mean, we went to dozens together. He took me to my first when I was just six months old. Um, obviously, I don't remember it, but he took me in one of those kind of baby backpacks. And the way he tells it is he asked the two women behind him, you know, if you if you guys kind of pay attention to my kid throughout the game, I'll, I'll buy your beers and your food. And they said, deal. <laughs> um, and we just went to dozens over the course of my life. But in so it's always kind of a nice moment when, you know, when you finally reach an age where you can afford to buy your parents dinner or do something nice for them, you know. Um, so I took him to a national league championship game, uh, in 2015. And then I took him to a world series game in 2016. And that's always a nice moment, uh, when you can kind of, you know, repay your father with something like that. Irish sports fans would have very good memories of the Cubs winning the world series because it was a few days later that we played New Zealand and beat New Zealand in the rugby, beat the all blacks at, at soldier field. I think the celebrations were still very much ongoing at that stage. How, how big a deal was it for the Chicago Cubs to win the world series for the first time in more than a hundred years? I think it's, it's really, really hard to quantify. I mean, I'd only been waiting 36 years at that point, but you had, you know, you had people who were a hundred years old who'd never seen it before. Uh, and there are all these amazing stories over the course of the week of, you know, people taking radios to their father's grave and sitting there at their father's grave to listen to World Series games. I mean, you, you think about World War One hadn't happened yet. You know, a lot of the country didn't have electricity the last time they won. So it was just it was just a massive, massive deal. And I think, you know, the Irish hadn't beaten the All Blacks in even longer, right? Ever. Yeah, yeah we never, never beat, the men's ever, team had yeah. never beaten them, no. <laughs> it was an extraordinary six days uh, for me, for Chicago. And uh, then Donald Trump won and just kind of put the kibosh on everything. Uh, the team did come to the White House, though. I believe it was the last speech you wrote for Barack Obama was the welcome speech to the World Series winning uh, Chicago Cubs. As president, we should say, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was It was the last public event in the Obama White House four days before we left. Um, and that, was, that wasn't a foregone conclusion. You know, typically a championship baseball team will come the next summer when they're scheduled to play the Washington Nationals. And but we just had we had so many Cubs fans in the White House and there were so many Obama fans on the team that we were working with them to try to make something happen. Um, the front office took it to the team and said, you know, we'll do something small in the Oval Office. We'll take whoever wants to go. And I think pretty much everyone but maybe two players uh, said we're in. So we decided to make a big deal out of it and have the team come. It was the first sports event. You know, the president will do this for whoever wins the Super Bowl, Stanley Cup, um, World Series, NBA Finals, college sports. So we'd probably done about 50 of these over the course of eight years. This was the first one that the first lady ever came to, <laughs> uh, which tells you how big it is. I mean, she grew up a Cubs fan. She, she watched games on her father's lap when she was a kid. But this was also, we didn't have a lot to do in that last week either. So this was the only sports event that took about two hours from start to finish instead of 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, we were, we were in the East, we were the state dining room with all the players first. And the president first lady decided on their own, we're going to take pictures with every single person. Uh, not just the players, but their families, the front office people. And uh, then we went in and typically we'd, we'd try to keep a sports speech to maybe five minutes. Uh, this was 20 minutes and I'm not sorry. I wrote, I wrote it like three pages. This was like my magnum opus. This was the one speech that I always joked I was sticking around for, but never thought I'd actually see. Um, so I just kind of let it all hang out. And I channeled a lot of these stories I've been telling you about, stories I've been reading in the paper, stories of me and my father, you know, my friends who are Cubs fans and just kind of, you know, it's not often that a, that a dream comes true and you get to write about it. Um, so I kind of let it all hang out in that speech. Forget about you, Cody. This must have been your dad's proudest moment, his crowning achievement. Forget about his State of the Union address or whatever it might be. He, did he get to see it? I brought him and my mom oh. uh, to the White House and they got to meet all the players. 
Um, they got to take pictures of everybody. They were there for all of it. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was really, really special. And we, you know, I got to hang out with the players before the president went out and spoke and they brought me, um, they were nice enough to bring me and a couple other fans, you know, customized jerseys and take pictures with us and tell stories. And I've actually gotten to stay in touch with a couple of them. Uh, and they're, they're just as kind as, as you'd hope they'd be. Beautiful. Well, for some extra points, you're going to have to pander to the Irish audience and tell us how amazing our national games are. Off you go, Cody. <laughs> so I got to go to the All Island Hurling a few weeks ago. Oh, great. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it. I was coming over for um, to unveil the Obama statues down in Moneygall and to work with some students in the Washington Ireland program. Right. And somebody offered me tickets. What a sport! I mean, everybody everybody was apologizing for the quality of play in the first half, <laughs> but I'd never been before. You know, and I thought it was I thought it was great fun. And then the last ten minutes were just extraordinary. Well, some Limerick people who are listening might actually hate you now, Cody, for getting your hands on tickets. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hottest um, tickets to dad, Cody. You did, good. you did well. You know what really stood out is yeah. that the fans were so gracious to each other before, during, and after the game. I mean, I didn't see any altercations, any bad blood, anything like that. And, and that's really something that I think American sports fans could use, could, could learn from. You mentioned you were there to unveil the Obama statues at Moneygall. Did you yeah. did, did you do so with a, f- a faint sense of kind of bathos? <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, what am I doing here? Unveiling statues here in 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 Moneygall. Is the the Barack Obama's link to Moneygall? I've often thought as I drive past there and see Barack Obama Plaza, I, f- I feel to myself that his link with the place is actually a little sort of tangential. I, I think a lot of people think that at first. Um, and, you know, any none of us know who our great-great-great-grandfather is. But when you think about it, you know, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather on each side came over from Ireland. And so he's actually closer in blood than I am. Um, I just have it on both sides. And I think the thing that people miss with him is, you know, you, you look at you look at a black man in America and he's a black man. You know, no matter what the shade is, um, he only met his father twice. You know, he was really raised by his mother and his grandparents by that Scotch Irish side of the family. So he takes it seriously in that, you know, that's a link to his mother and to his grandparents. And that's where they came from. Um, he doesn't walk around telling people, yeah, I'm Irish all the time. But, um, you know, it comes in handy on St. Patrick's Day in politics. But but for him, that's a real thing. And getting to go back to Moneygall, I was there when he walked around on the same floor that his great, great, great grandfather walked around on and, and he, you know, commented on that. He said, this is, this is really something. And, you know, it's easy to dismiss the plaza too, but, but you think about it, you know, that's, it's something now that employs literally half the town and it's been a great source of opportunity for them and pride. Um, and when I was there, you know, for, for the statue unveiling, two different American couples came up to me and they said, we were just here to fill up our car and came over to see what's going on. This is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, the, the museum is actually really cool when you go in there. They've done some extraordinary work on it. Happy with that answer, Ken? Has that punctured your no, cynicism? No, that's, that's great. I feel, I feel bad, actually. Now. <laughs> I feel bad for <laughs> mocking the money goal connection. What about your own sports playing career, Cody? What was your number one sport? Uh, American football. Right. That doesn't mean I was any good at it, though. <laughs> no, no false modesty now. We need, we, we need a full list of achievements here. What position were you? I was a quarterback. Oh, uh, no. oh, 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 oh. You must have been at least half Quarterback? Decent. That's the superstar. <laughs> well, it, we weren't exactly a football town, but I was the quarterback of the football team. I, I grew up playing... I grew up outside of Chicago, um playing uh little league and soccer and we actually moved for my dad's work we moved out to connecticut when i was in high school to you know a smaller high school that i would have gone to in chicago um first day of freshman football the coach he said we need a quarterback and nobody raised their hand so after maybe five seconds i raised my hand i still can't remember why and said i'll do it um so i had to learn how to play but became starting quarterback and blew apart my knee at the end of my freshman season um so i had to sit out my sophomore season and came back my junior and senior years. High school football is a really big deal. You said you weren't from necessarily a massive football town, but this is a religion practically in America, this whole Friday Night Lights thing. Yeah, I mean, it, we had it too. I mean, it's certainly, it's not like Texas or Florida or California, but uh, we played our games on Friday nights, um, and it was a blast. You know, the whole town would come out. You'd have about 5,000 people in the stands. Uh, we, we were never a good team, really. You know, my, my junior year, we were 6-5. and five. My senior year, we were 3-8. and eight. But... Um, it was fun, you know, and, and, and the most important thing about it, you know, that it taught me for life was how to lead a team, how to work with a team, how to, you know, play your role and inspire others to play theirs. Um, you know, there was never a question about whether or not I'd go play collegiate football because uh, I wanted to go to a big university with a big football program and be a fan instead. But, um, you know, a lot of the lessons stick with me, even if the, 
the good memories are few and far between. Uh, you know, I think it's telling that three years after I graduated with a new coaching staff, my team ended up winning the state title, which I was super proud of, but <laughs> I was long gone by that point. Well, that doesn't count as your ultimate highlight, I'm afraid, Cody, if you weren't involved in the team. We need one big, one big moment, one big night of this fledgling career that you had as a quarterback. What's your, what's your highlight? I've got an ultimate highlight. It was my 16th birthday, yeah. uh, October of 1996, and we were playing our arch rivals, Wilton. They were the next town south. Uh, we ended up beating them 26 to nothing. I threw a touchdown pass. Uh, I broke a kid's collarbone on a tackle, (laughs) which, you know, at the time you feel pretty great about, but in retrospect, I feel terrible about only having gone through injuries myself. Um, And that night after the game, I asked the captain of the cheerleading squad if she'd go to the homecoming dance with me, and she said yes. So all around, that was a pretty big (laughs) All-American night. Hold on a second. Is this an actual thing, or is is this a film script you're reading out here? You're the quarterback of the team. You throw all these touchdowns. You win the game against the local rivals. You ask the head cheerleader to what? What did you ask her to? I asked her to the homecoming dance. Homecoming yeah. dance. And let's not forget the collarbone. I mean, yeah, you come break on. up. You break another person's collarbone. Everybody's dream. Now, this sounds like a movie. Script. Yeah, but the, the, the collarbone thing I've always felt bad about because I, <laughs> you know, I stood over the guy while he was writhing in pain and I barked at him like a dog. <laughs> oh no! And you know, after that, I walked away and I was like, "What was that?" You, know, you, you just get you just get caught up in the moment with testosterone. And I've felt bad about it ever since. You know, hopefully that guy's you know thriving and living really well somewhere. But uh, I remember my dad afterwards. He was like, "Why'd you bark at that guy?" <laughs> <laughs> did, did the relationship with the cheerleader last? No, it did not. Okay. No, it did not. Okay, she's married with four children, I believe. Excellent. <laughs> it's worked out well for everybody. Listen, Cody, you've stated your case. Now you got to sit back and see if you've done enough. The time has come for Murph to rank this sporting life of Cody Keenan. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. All right, Cody, let's go. Much like the reams of polling data accumulated during State of the Union addresses, I've been very carefully poring over the details of your sporting career. I will now rank your all-time sports highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover just where you stand on our greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. Your high school quarterback exploits are like something from a Kevin Costner movie, and so we have to give credit where it's due. The, uh, the wooing of the prom queen might be seen by some to be gilding the lily somewhat, but we'll forgive your 18-year-old self. However, we can... 16-year-old self. 16, yep, yep. However, we can't overlook all of these sad high school nerds who looked on with envy while all this was going on. All of this quarterbacking and prom queen dating puts me in mind of all-American hero Johnny Unitas, whose stellar passing game and crew cut cowed opposition and intimidated nerds countrywide throughout the 1960s, even if there are some slight political differences between yourself and Johnny, I feel. So, taking all that into account and acknowledging that all joking aside, you appear to have been pretty bloody good at American football, I'm going to give you 76 points, good enough for fourth place on our season leaderboard. Cody Keenan, this has been your sporting life. Ah, happy enough with that, well Cody. Well done, well done. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 only, the only two flaws is I was not that good at football, just that one night. Uh, and I was a nerd. I was a huge nerd, even as I was playing football. I was a, I was a total bookworm and a straight-A student. No, I'm not buying it. You can't. Uh, listen, I've watched enough movies. I know that they're mutually exclusive. And that's just the way high hey, school life is. Even even Kevin Costner made Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> Cody Keenan, you've been absolutely brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Round of applause, guys, please, for Cody Keenan. Thanks a lot. It's good to talk with you.
Peters there with Divine Hammer on Second Captain Saturday. Do you want to get out of the way now, Ken? God. Your apology to the people of Money Gall, off you uh, go. Yeah. The solid citizens of Ken. Barack Obama I Plaza. Did, I actually did feel guilty. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, not only am I unfairly suggesting Barack Obama doesn't take his Irish ancestry seriously, mm. but also I want to put the people of Money Gall out of a job. Mm. Uh, it's just that I pass by it. You know, my wife's from Limerick. It's on the road to Limerick, between Dublin and Limerick, and I pass by it many times and always snigger at it, I want to be frank. But I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to suggest maybe next time we might go into the museum. Mm. Yeah. You've learned a valuable lesson here this morning, Ken. And that's, that's something you can't put a price on. Thanks so much to Cody Keenan, Barack Obama's speechwriter, high school quarterback, and world's biggest Chicago Cubs fan by the sounds of things. You know why I had to shoehorn a Ferris Peters Day Off reference in there, don't you? Of course. Possibly the greatest movie ever set in Chicago. Yeah, not just Chicago, but part of it in Wrigley Field, home of Cody's beloved Cubs. If you've forgotten this sequence in the movie, Ferris Bueller has the misfortune of catching a home run in the stands, which results in his being picked out by the TV cameras and rumbled by the principal because he is taking an unscheduled day off. Uh, he's, he's mitching of course, off here. Yeah, yeah. There are real-life crowd shots used in the film from an actual game. And yes, before you ask, Aaron, somebody has gone to the trouble of identifying the match in question. Larry Granillo, or Granillo, is the journalist in question. I'll spare you the painstaking research that he did. It goes on for a long time. The conclusion he came to was the scenes were shot at a game between the Cubs and the Atlanta Braves, which means we have an actual date for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. June 5th, 1985. There you go, you asked for it. Well, I didn't actually ask for it on, but nevertheless, I have it now. That's the important. We're back next week with an utterly brilliant guest, Andy Irvine, the creative genius behind Planksy, the greatest band in traditional Irish music history, is going to be in studio. To keep going until then, check out our daily shows on the Second Captains World Service. The website is secondcaptains.com. Marion Fadukin's up next here on Radio 1. Thanks very much to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing the show. Killian Down for researching. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Emil, for listening, and have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.